This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book. It is number eight of the series, The Two-Foldedness of Prophetic Teaching. And it is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. We ask you, who are listening to this tape recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a moment or two while we read chapters one and two of Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians. This evening, we are considering the two-foldedness of prophetic truth with a special emphasis upon the fact that both the truth and the lie is supported and attested by miracles. I think one of the things we do well to remember that it's very possible that some of God's own people may be preparing the minds of men to receive the Antichrist. Because, you see, if you train up the mind that wherever you see a miracle worked, it must be an evidence of God, well, you're simply playing into the hands of the wicked one. Because you find, scattered through Scripture, evidence that when necessary, he can perform that which to us is miracle, and he's done so, and we are warned that he will yet do so. And in the passage we read just now, I'll read it, we shall come back to it, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan. Satan is at work with all power and signs and wonders. Now if I leave one word out, that's exactly the way in which the miracles of Christ are described. Power and signs and wonders. But the word I've left out is the operative word. It's the word lying. They belong to the lie. They're furthering the lie. And it's a very false idea of Satan's wisdom to say, oh, but the devil would never heal anybody of his disease. Friend, I believe the devil would cure, cure me of my arthritis if I give up the truth of God. I hope I shall. But you see what I mean? If the devil is to be attributed with wisdom at all, he wouldn't mind how well you were in body as long as you were dead in spirit. So you see, the sheer evidence that you can have a great meeting where people came in with their crutches and went out without them, proves nothing. I remember many years ago when I didn't know anything of the truth of God, only just a beginner, I stood in the great church of Padua in Italy, San Antonio, St. Anthony, and there was an anteroom about half the size of this chapel, stacked full of crutches, that had been left behind by pilgrims who had prayed to a dead saint and bowed their heads on the tomb of this man in the middle of the chapel. Well, if you want proof, then, you see, there's proof enough that, all oh, this must be of God, for how would they have got home without their crutches? Well, Satan could see to it they get home without their crutches, all right, if it was going to further his purposes. So, once more, it is to the law and the testimony The only guarantee we have is, thus saith the Lord. Miracle or no miracle, it never can be accepted by any of us, any teaching, doctrine or practice that contravenes what God has already explicitly written. Well now let's come back on our thoughts. We are at the end of it just now, that's more or less where we're getting. It would be an opportunity this evening to consider positively, as well as this negative aspect, Positively, the place that miracles have in the scriptures. 
You would imagine, speaking to some people who object, that the moment you start the book of Genesis, right straight through to the book of Revelation, almost every other page, somebody is working a miracle. Well, if you would only read the Bible right through, that would be a miracle, wouldn't it, in itself? If you'd only do it, you'd find you've got whole chapters and whole books without a single miracle there. They're never wrought without a purpose. Now, first of all, I happened to read the newspaper yesterday, I think it was, and I thought, well, that's all ready for me, because I'd copied out just the words of a, of a philosopher, 1700, Hume, you may know about his philosophy, and he said that miracle was a violation of the laws of nature, and we had now an unalterable experience of what those laws were, therefore miracles are out of it. Well, I read this in the paper, quoting from the universe around us by Sir James Jeans. Now, he's a modern uh, scientist. We've heard about him. His books are on the shelves, still in the, in the shops. In 1929, this great scientist said, a mass of uranium, or radium, does not explode whatever we do with it. I wouldn't like to trust him now, would you? See, universal experience says it's against it. Well, now the very thing that they are using is uranium and radium to explode. So you see, it's one thing to quote these scientists and these philosophers. It's another thing to wait long enough to see how they are simply set on one side and the word of our God still stands. But I think it's a very great mistake to say a miracle is a contravention of the laws of nature. Who invented the laws of nature? You might say, God, not a bit of it, man has. He's puzzled about things, and at last he says, there's a law of gravitation. Well, that's good enough for ordinary everyday purposes, but what is gravitation? Is it made of anything? How does it hold on to something? And the, fa the most famous scientist in the world would simply be as good as I am at it. He doesn't know. I always remember one very simple argument that was carried on. It was carried on out in the open air, where one or two men who were digging a hole in the road stopped for lunch. And one of them happened to be a Christian, and the other was tweeting him about miracles. And this other one who didn't believe miracles, he said, if I throw anything up, whatever happens, if I throw anything up, it must come down. So the man who was cutting his bread and cheese went like that with his pen knife, and it stuck in the roof of the shed. He says, and I've overcome that gravity. That's a miracle. That's all. You overcome one law by a greater one when a little child is almost toppling over the edge of a cliff. The mother breaks all the laws of gravitation and grabs it. That's love counteracting gravitation. And that's all that it amounts to. If we're going to say God is paralysed in his own universe, that because he's made things to act in a certain way, he cannot do what a mother would do to save her child, well, we're just silly. So we're not going to argue that point any further. Now, why are these miracles recorded at all. Well, let's get one or two passages just to help us in this direction. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, 
How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. And you'll find the word confirmed comes in Corinthians as well. Confirming the uh, with signs following. So we've got the, the first thought that he confirms. And then if you'll turn back to Matthew the ninth chapter, you'll have another way in which the miracle can confirm and establish that which may be questionable at first in your own idea. The, the ninth chapter. Here's a man sick of the palsy. And up till now when the sick of the palsy and any others had been brought to the Lord, he just healed them. That was all. Nothing more. But you see, the Lord is now going to break with that. Instead of saying, oh, there's another one who wants healing, sending him away healed, he stops. He says, look, this healing is of value, of course, certainly to the one who is healed. But it's got a greater value in the sense that it can teach you lessons. You see, none of these miracles in the Bible are simply things to open your mouth in wonder. You may not be able to explain them. But they are, as John puts it, he never calls them miracles in his gospel. He calls them signs. Signs. They signify something. So here we've got the first one that's picked out by Matthew with this thought. He says in verse 2, And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Now, they're all expecting it. Rise! Take up thy bed and walk, or something like that. Now, I can sympathise with this man because on Sunday night I got so paralysed with this pain that I have that I couldn't possibly move, I couldn't get out, couldn't put my foot down. And I'm so thankful that a possible engagement, as you'll hear about on Tuesday morning, was very graciously cancelled by a friend, but I should have to send a telegram and cancel it. So, I'm not belittling the thought that a palsy man would be very glad to be able to take up his bed and walk. But the Lord said, I've got something better for you now. The time has come. And he looked at him and he said, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Don't you see what the Lord was doing? He was saying, look, it's all very well for you to follow me because I heal people. It's all very well for you to follow me because I fed 5,000. But he says, that's not the be all and the end all of the miracles. They are to lead you to something. So he said, now, they said among themselves, this man blasphemeth. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think you even in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. Well, I know, don't you? I could easily put on a very solemn face and say to somebody, Thy sins be forgiven thee, and you wouldn't know whether they were or not. But if I said to someone sick of the palsy, arise and walk, you'd soon know, wouldn't you? Don't you see the value of the miracle now? But that ye may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to do one thing, I'll do the other. Now he's challenging the Father. 
if after he's made a blasphemous claim to forgive sins, the father permits that man to be healed, you know the blasphemy wasn't there. It was their thoughts. So he said, that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine own house. Now you want to remember that nearly every miracle that's wrought has that double element about it. Christ opened the eyes of the blind. That's what he came to do spiritually. He touched the ears of the deaf, and that's what he's done spiritually. He's made the dumb to speak the lame to walk, the lepers to be cleansed, the dead to be raised. They're all shadows and pictures of what he's going to do in the spiritual realm. And if we're simply taken up with a mere physical miracle, we've missed our way. We've been looking at a signpost, but we can't read the sign on it. So, that's the first thought I thought we ought to have in front of us. Well, now, another, another evident reason for a miracle, it's, Something to arrest your attention. Will you come back to the book of Exodus? Chapter 3. Remember that Moses has fled from Egypt and he's been there in this wilderness keeping sheep and I dare say he was very, very perturbed for the thing that time had gone on and he was left there. And it says in verse... Um, Two of the Exodus three, and the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not consumed. But the Lord never told him why the bush wasn't consumed. And I've read articles where it proves that he was demonstrating to Moses that Israel were the people that never could be destroyed. It doesn't say, it simply says, I wonder what that's, what's that funny idea, says Moses. I'll go to see why, that's all. It attracted his attention. So there may be sometimes a little episode in your life, friends, or in mine. There wouldn't be an outstanding miracle in one sense, but God can do something to attract your attention in a way that You'd never be able to be attracted otherwise. So, we leave that to speak for itself. But, while we've got Exodus in front of us, we've got the evidence once more of the way in which miracles can be used to give credentials. Now you think, somebody is coming to you and he says, I have been sent by the risen Christ to declare unto you this, and if you believe it, it means your whole eternal destiny is different from if you don't believe it. Well, you imagine somebody coming like that for the first time on earth. Don't you think you would be wise to say, well, how do I know whether you're true or not? That's reasonable, isn't it? So when we look at Exodus 4 and see the same spirit there, and Moses answered and said, Behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And don't forget, he's going back to the land of the old enemy. He's going to face Pharaoh himself. And he himself said, I don't know, I've got to take, I've got to take this as being gospel truth. I've got to go back there. Surely I have to have some credentials. But the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. So it evidently at least looked rather formidable. 
I paused for a moment to lift out a little story from this for myself and you. While we are dealing with wonders and miracles, the Lord simply said to Moses, what is that in thine hand? And what was it? Just a shepherd's staff. Just an ordinary staff. That's the rod of God after that. God says to you and to me, what is in thine hand? And one says, oh, I can do a bit of writing. Another one says, well, I'm good at washing up. Another one says, something else. And you know, we're looking for miraculous, spectacular things and the Lord is many times saying to you and to me, what is that in thine hand? And if a whole company like us stood before the Lord and said, what is that in thy hand? And he said, this, that, or the other, why they wouldn't hold us for the work we do, would they? But you see, we're all waiting for the mighty thing. If I'd asked you to do some great thing, said the Lord, as, or as it was said to Naaman and the Syrian, if you'd been asked to do some great thing, you would have done it. But he says, dip seven times in Jordan, you go away in a huff. Well, we'll leave that to speak for itself. Now, God said to Moses, put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. He says, that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers has sent you. And again he said, put your hand into your bosom. Take it out. Cover with leprosy. Put it back. Cleanse. Those two signs go deeper than merely on the surface, don't they? The serpent and leprosy. Satan and sin. Here's a man coming back to be a deliverer. Not merely from the bondage of Egypt, but from the bondage of sin and death. He was foreshadowing the greater Moses. As the Lord said, as he said himself, a greater than, than Moses uh, shall come. And here he is. So we've got these signs. Now he could go into the presence of Pharaoh. And he could go into the presence of the people of Israel. And he could say, these things have been given to me as my attestations, my credentials. Well, then that brings us to the fact that they could be travestied. You remember that presently, when, they, when he went uh, into the presence of God, that the, and he, he did these miracles, that the magicians of Egypt, they did the same. Once now and again they were defeated, but they did some. And he didn't say that they were just imaginary. We don't know how they did them. We mustn't discredit them in order to bolster up the truth. So now we've got the two together, one over against the other. But of course we realise that that must ever be so. If there's going to be a fight for the truth, there will be the backwards and forwards in this direction. And we want to be avoid uh, being, being deceived. Um... In chapter 14 is a hint that we must not always expect a miracle to be something which is outside, completely outside the realm of everyday experience. We mustn't think that a miracle is simply uh, a waving of a magic wand. Here God himself explains what is really a miracle, but he says it's done by natural means. The only thing about it that was miraculous is that it took place at the identical time. But that's miraculous enough. If, um, if 
deliverance comes a day too late, or if deliverance comes a day too early, well, it might not just will not come at all. But if it comes right at the very identical moment, that's miraculous enough, whatever other agency was used. So shall we look at the 14th chapter, and verse 16 and 21. Verse 21 says, And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back. Now he could have stopped there, but he didn't. It goes on to say, The Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. Now the east wind may have turned around and said, I'll be the west wind, or it was a calm, still night, and the rod would have done nothing. That east wind was under the control of God. And all these elements, instead of being contrary to the laws of nature, are the laws of nature under the control of God. And what would be a, 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 a miracle in one generation is something that we're doing all day long without thinking of it in another. I can remember in my earliest days hearing the old dad downstairs chopping a few sticks and then they were put on the kitchen fire, and then there was the matches struck, and then there was a gradual waiting for the kettle to boil. Well now, of course, I don't think about magic when I do this sort of thing, but that would be magic in those days for a moment, wouldn't it? So you see, don't always look for the spectacular. An east wind coming at the right time was all that God needed. And while we're about it, the crossing of the River Jordan. Suddenly the water ceases. Well, if you read the history of the River Jordan, you'll find it's done many times. The River Jordan comes through a gorge, and it's continually undermining the banks. And occasionally the whole bank caves in, and there the water piles up until it comes clean over and sweeps it away again. That's all God did. He made the earth to tremble. Down came the bank. Water stopped. They went over dry shod, and when they walked round the walls of Jericho, the trembling earth which had upset the banks of the Jordan upset the walls of Jericho. You mean to say that's not a miracle? That's how God works, you see. Sometimes without giving you any hint whatever of the way he does it, sometimes he's using just the forces that he's put into this world, but he's controlling them. And all these things contribute to our understanding. Well, as I said earlier, we can understand why John, when he wrote his gospel, he doesn't use the word miracle. He says these signs, these signs, they signify something. The feeding of the 5,000, the opening of a man's eyes who was born blind, the calling of a dead man out of his grave and he was able to answer him and come out. All these were signs of yet future glories that were yet to be. And then they have a certain arrangement, if you'll come back to the Gospel according to Matthew. They're not indiscriminately introduced into the story, if you put them together. Here's an illustration of what I mean. Matthew, the 8th chapter. Matthew, the 8th chapter. First of all, we have a man worshipping him and said, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. This is verse 2. And that is the right order of all prayer. We don't say, Lord, if, it, if you could possibly cleanse me, I hope you will. 
We say, Lord, I know it's quite within thy power, but I don't know whether it's within thy will. That's the point in prayer. If thou, if thou canst, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. You see, we cannot dictate to God and say it must be. But we never go into the presence of God and say, well, I, I don't quite like to ask this because I don't, not, don't feel quite sure whether you could do it or not. Oh no. So he said, if thou wilt, thou canst. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will. Be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. Well then he said something which I wish every one of those who run heeding campaigns, as they still have gospel missions with heeding, I wish they would do the same thing. Because our Saviour said to this man, now you go, go to thy way and show thyself to the priest. If every heeding campaign after the person was healed at that public meeting, was told to go and see his doctor and get a doctor's certificate that he was cured, you might think there was something in it. But many a time it's a matter of hysteria and you never hear the results afterwards. Be what watchful about such things as that. Well then the next thing, that's the leper, who was one of the people of Israel, he was touched by the Lord. Now look, look at the next miracle. Verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him. Now the centurion was a Roman. He was a Gentile. And he said, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Well, he heard about the other man who was sick of the palsy, so he comes. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. Now look what the centurion said. Oh, no, he said, I'm not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. And he was. So he was a Jew who was a leper who was touched by the Lord. He was a Gentile who was healed at the distance. And then following that, we have uh, Peter's wife's mother, she lay sick of a fever, verse 14, and he raised her from the dead and she ministered unto him. And so we have these three. The Jew who was a leper touched, the Gentile who was healed at a distance, and the wife of Peter's, or Peter's wife's mother who was healed by a touch, as though there was the difference between the Gentile and the Jew. If you look now at chapter 15, You've got here, I think, a searching lesson for most of us. Verse 21, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. Now they are outside the land of promise. This is in the Gentile world. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Now she wasn't even asking for healing for herself. She was asking for her daughter. And here's the marvellous thing. He answered her not a word. Well that's so contrary to what the character we build up in our mind of the Son of God. Fancy, he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him saying, 
send her away, for she cried after us. And then he said in her hearing, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he repeated what he'd already said in chapter 10. Go not into the way of the Gentiles, only to the house of Israel. And then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord. She dropped the title, Son of David. Does it matter? Oh, yes. She had no claim, no right to use the title Son of David because that was peculiarly associated with Christ as King of the people. And she was an outsider for the time being. But she came and said, Lord. He said, now, it's not neat to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. And again, that would have been a, a severe rebuff. Because in the days when the Lord was here in the Bible lands, people didn't have little dogs and treat them as though they were babies. You meet some people who've got more love for their dog than they've got for their baby. But in the East, dogs are without. You remember? Without are dogs. They are scavengers. A dog and a pig, they have an antiseptic saliva so that they can eat a lot of muck without poisoning themselves. And if they've been without food for some time, a dog can lick a sore and help to heal it, you see. But that's by the way. But apparently, even in the East, where the dog is an outsider, they cannot resist a little puppy for a few weeks of its little life. And our Lord knew that. So he didn't say dogs. He didn't say dogs. He said puppy dogs. It's Cunelia, it's the divinity, puppy dogs. And she seized on it. She said, truth, Lord. Yet, the little puppy dogs, they do eat the crumbs which fall from their lord's, that word master, their lord's table. He said, oh woman, great is thy faith. And there she got it. But the point is this, and I feel it's so very important that I think we'll have to have a little booklet on it, presently, so look out, there'll be another one for you to buy. Is this true? The cross is the touchstone of our faith. Oh, yes, says the evangelical brother who condemns me. See? Yes, the, the cross is the touchstone. Right, I say. How many of those who heard the Sermon on the Mount knew anything about the cross of Christ? None of them. Even Peter in Matthew 16 shows that he never heard about it. What did this woman know about the cross of Christ? Nothing. It hadn't been revealed. Because in Matthew 16, from that time forth, Jesus began to say, and he never said it before. So the person who's taking the attitude of the, uh, right through the early parts of the Gospel according to Matthew, is simply living on crumbs that fall from Israel's table. But I'm believing blessings that were never on Israel's table. But I'm looking for them in the right place. I find them defined for me in the epistle to the Ephesians. I should never find them defined for me in the early chapters of Matthew. So she got crumbs. Well, that was a blessing. But whether you, whether you think that's good enough for you, I can't. And I said, no accounting for taste, they say, don't they? But if I've got the option by the mercy of God of having all spiritual blessings in heavenly places where Christ sits at the right hand of God, I say, no crumbs for me, thank you. I hope you re feel that's at least reasonable. 
Well, now shall we move on again? At chapter 21, verse 19. In verse 15, we find the uh, children crying Hosanna to the son of David. Later on, he drives, he rides into Jerusalem on the ass, and they cry Hosanna. And within a few days, the same people who cried Hosanna cried crucify him. And they come under the parable that because when the sun is a sun is up, because they had no root, they withered away. So here they are. They're crying Hosanna. And it says in verse um, 18, now in the morning as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon, but leaves only. And said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And then he reminds them. Now you know there's another another occasion when it says, For the time of figs was not yet. And that's been a puzzle to some of us, hasn't it? You say, why go to a tree when you know it's not the time for fig trees and then when there are no figs there to blast it? Well, you're sure there's something slipped up there, isn't there? Yes. Now, if you would like to delve into some of the rabbinical literature, you'd find they've got something that would puzzle some of our tax inspectors. I don't know whether you can understand a, a, a note that comes from the income tax. I blessedly hand the whole lot over to Mr. Morton and I say, right, whatever whatever you say goes, I've got the remotest idea whether it's right, good, bad or indifferent. But here they had different sorts of taxation for whether it was a a fruit that was one year old or two year old or three year old, all on the same tree. How do you didn't know that perhaps? So you see, he was a tree all out in leaf. Well, that was an evidence to anybody who knew the growth of fig trees that there would be fruit on it that belonged to last year or the year before. And when he came there, there was none. He said, that's a picture of this people of Israel. They've got all the evidence of being fruitful. But when you come to find it, there's none. And it's rather a wonderful thought, isn't there? This is the thing that I I can't explain. Great admission on my part, isn't it? A failing man like Peter can cause Ananias and Sapphira to drop dead. A failing man like the Apostle Paul can strike a Jew with blindness. And the Son of God never blasted any man with a miracle. The only ones that suffered were the fig trees and the swine that ran down into those depths. I don't know what lesson there is there. But I can see here, you see, that this is something that is to draw our attention. The fig tree was simply getting external evidence with nothing to justify it. I think perhaps we ought to look at Mark 16.
He says in verse 15, he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing it shall not hurt them. They shall lay their hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Well, there are some who say that that is true for them today. And there are occasions, I've read recounts in American newspapers, that there is a sect having meetings in certain parts of the United States that actually still believe that they can take up serpents, and they do. And then occasionally one of the pastors drops dead as a result. I don't know how they get over that. It's very much like the followers of Mrs. Eddy. They went to her funeral and they still believe what she says. There is no such thing as death. It's a mere a figment of the mind, you see. Marvellous what you can believe, isn't it? Well, here it says certain things. They shall take up serpents. Will you come with me to the end of the Acts of the Apostles? The end of the Acts of the Apostles. A ship has been wrecked. And in the first verse it says, And when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita. And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, he laid them on the fire, and there came out a viper out of the, out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Mark 16 was still obtaining friends. Mark 16 doesn't just begin at the Acts of the Apostles first chapter or so and then stop. It runs right through the Acts of the Apostles until the last chapter. So the hope of Israel with signs and wonders and miracles associated with it covers the whole of the Acts of the Apostles and includes all the teaching that the Apostle Paul gives right through to the end of the Acts. After that, he laid his hands on a man who was suffering from dysentery, as the word is translated here, bloody flux, dysentery, and they were healed. And so he says to them in verse 20, For this cause therefore have I called for you to see you and to speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. The hope of Israel runs right through the Acts of the Apostles from chapter 1 to chapter 28 and includes 1 Corinthians 15, it includes 1 Thessalonians 4, it all belongs to the period when you could pick up serpents and not be bitten to death by them. So you must take the both together, friends. If you say, no, I'm not going to give up 1 Thessalonians 4, well, don't forget you may be challenged one of these days. So, now we've, we've got so far. Now let's come to the other side of the story where we've got the evil one with his miracles. And we come back to Matthew 24 to get the first statement. Matthew 24. They said to him, 
verse 3, what shall be the sign of thy coming? Or when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? And I suppose nearly every one of us at some time or another have conjured with these words. And his answer was nothing to do with the time or the sign or the end of the world. He simply said, take heed that no man deceive you. That's the first thing he said. This is a very happy hunting ground, the second coming of Christ for deception. And he says, there were many Christs, false Christs. And it's remarkable how they have arisen at different places and different times, those who have said, said to be the Messiah. There's some living today who practically have claimed to be the Messiah, and they'll have their followers. Well now, when he's got through to an end of a section, he comes back to this deception. It says, verse 23, Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. That shows you what a near thing it is, doesn't it? Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. And I can always remember somebody calling at the house when we were living at Hutton, who said that Christ had already come. You know, who you've had them before, they tell you, Oh yes, Christ came in 1914. And I remember my daughter Ruth, who was just a schoolgirl, she said, but it, it says in the Bible, if they say that, believe him not. I said, where do you find that? So they found Matthew 24, and it says, if they say he's in the secret place, believe him not. He said, always come in secret. Of course, he knew that verse, but he didn't know the next. Trouble with these people, they know texts, but they don't know the context. But it says, for as the lightning shineth out from the east, and shineth even out of the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Do you know? As long as you can argue on your doorstep whether the Son of Man has come, you know he hasn't. For when he does come, it won't be a matter of argument any more than the lightning shining from the east to the west. You'll know it well enough then. And so we've got these statements of our Lord that deception will be there and to do with these miraculous signs. Will you look at Revelation chapter 13? Here we're right up towards the very end of the age now, to which all things are now gradually re leading up to a climax. It says in verse 4, And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And then it says about the false prophet, verse 13, he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, 
that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Here's a miracles. Very intensive ones. One of them has to do with war. You imagine a power that can say to the world today that they, that, that one single power has got the Lord in his grip. Who is able to make war with him when you think that there's enough now terror in the, in the arsenals of the world? And yet, they're all going to be powerless, friends. All the nations of the world stocking up their missiles, then to be told, well, you can't use them. I'll use them for you in some secret way that paralyzes the whole world. That's where it's coming. And the false prophet is going to make it so that men will marvel at this resurrected beast demanding they worship the image of the beast and bear his number and mark and name. What it all means, we don't know, thank God. But it's a most evident climax to all this uh, deception. Well, as our time is running on, we'll come now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, a part of which we read together earlier. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by our coming, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us. Well, here's the beginning of deception here in this verse. Three ways. Speaking by the Spirit. Because in the early church, there were these gifts. And they had to regulate them. They had to test them. Try the spirits to see whether they're a God. For there's a spirit of evil at work that's travesting and copying and deceiving. In the very assembly, you might have someone standing up speaking with an unknown tongue who is definitely offering worship to Satan instead of to God. That's been, that's been known in modern times. But it goes deeper than that. After it speaks about the... the um, oh, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, that's the day of the Lord, it should read, not day of Christ, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. It's a very solemn thought that you and I by our actions, may be helping a little bit that apostasy. Because you can't fall away from a thing you never believe, can you? You can't accuse a person who's never heard the gospel of Christ of denying it or falling away from it. So there's going to be a falling away from the truth. And that means the rot has start inside the church to prepare for the rot outside. Except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, and so on. Or then it comes down to this subject we're on particularly, the miracles to justify and to further the evil course. Verse 9, even him who's coming 
is the coming is the same word used of our Lord's coming, the parousia, the second coming, after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and wonders that belong to the lie. The others are those which belong to the truth. But there's no alteration in the words. You do a great disservice to truth if you minimise the devil. If he can get a company of God's people to come to the conclusion that there is no such person as Satan, well, he's won a point. He could carry on then without being suspected. We get the idea from the uh, epistle of Jude of the mightiness of this devil against whom all this is spoken. But even the Michael Archangel, he did not bring again against the devil a raiding accusation, but he said, the Lord rebuked thee. So here we have then, signs, powers, wonders, but they're all pseudo, they're all lie, they're furthering the lie, instead of furthering the truth. With all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. That's the way they work. Because, would you say, isn't this a terrible thing to think that men should be subjected to such deception? Ah, oh, but wait till God's told you. Wait till God's told you. Let me for a moment leave this and remind you in Second Timothy. Uh, we'll turn to that and come back here uh, 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 to finish. Second Timothy, chapter 3. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Now the word covetous is lovers of money. And then at the end, verse 4, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. It begins and ends with a double emphasis upon the word love. That's their character. They're lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. They're lovers of their own selves and they're loving money. Well, in chapter 4, it says, verse 10, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Didn't say he didn't believe the truth, he has loved this present world. Well now we come back to 2 Thessalonians 2. Uh, verse 10. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. They put up an opposition. It wasn't a poor innocent person being blinded and blasted by miraculous power. Oh no. These are those who had the witness because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, that they shall believe the lie. The old scientists used to say, nature abhors a vacuum. They didn't know how to explain the barometer and why it went up, but they said, well, there was nothing up there, so nature abhors a vacuum, and up it goes. But we know now it's pressure of air at so much to, to the square inch. But there's still an element of truth that nature abhors a vacuum. If you will not receive the truth, friends, there's every possibility that you'll receive the lie. And I've been astounded at some people 
They couldn't possibly leave what's written in this book, but they've only got to read half a line in a newspaper, something that's against it, and they're never going to prove it, they never look up any references, oh, that's good enough for them, they swallow that. It largely depends upon your attitude of mind, friends, how you receive a witness. So he says, for this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned, who believe not the truth, but here it comes again, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So don't go saying, oh, I couldn't possibly believe that. Oh, God's too kind for that. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. It says so. And it says he's coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. Not poor, ignorant heathen, but those who had the love of the truth presented to them and because of their own attitude have shut the door against it. And so... They're reaping as they sow. I don't know as we need to go on any further. I've tried to demonstrate a little bit what a miracle is, a little bit what it isn't, and the reasons why they are in Scripture. They come at certain periods when they were necessary, when our Saviour was born, and when at 30 years of age he stood up and said he was sent as the Messiah, well, naturally, a person might say, well, how do we know that? But we are told that the whole land, from one end to the other, was moved by the amount of miracles that were all crowded in one verse at the end of chapter 4 of Matthew. And then come specific miracles, all worked out. But John tells us, he did so many. He did so many, he says, that the world would not contain a record of them. I had to make a selection. So you see, God has not left himself without witness. If ever there was an attestation that Christ had been sent by God, it was done by all those mighty works. And you remember, in Matthew 11, it tells you that because they repented not, he couldn't do any more mighty works there, because they had an object in front of them to bring repentance to a people who said, oh, God has intervened and sent his son we must now listen to his words, but no, they treated him with indifference. And so the kingdom of heaven ceased to be proclaimed and the mystery of the kingdom of heaven came in to take its place temporarily. So we've just run through in this series, a brief series, some of the things that you will find. Two-foldedness of prophetic truth. We started with the two seeds and we end up with the two of them again at the other end of the story. If any of you would like to pursue this subject further, and you have a copy of the alphabetical analysis, you will find somewhere in one of the parts, on some page or the other, I don't know which part, I don't know which page, although I wrote it myself, I've got it a wonderful memory, you'll find there a, a longer list that you can take up at your leisure to study this very, very important item in the interpretation of Scripture. I've only picked out these eight as samples of what you might expect. So, I, I commend you to the Lord and I commend that study to you because I'm sure the more you realise that there will be this great travesty going on in every department of God's revelation, the more you will be armed, ready to defend the truth yourself and perhaps to save a, a more ignorant brother from being trapped as they may, may easily be.